So 18 years ago in New Jersey, you could still smoke cigarettes in bars. So we were playing and I seen people smoke a cigarette and play their music at the same time. I thought that was so cool. I thought that was badass. <laughs> so I lit a cigarette and I'm playing. Still to this day, I can barely look up when I'm performing the piano. So I'm playing the piano and obviously the cigarette is getting smaller and smaller. There's just a crazy amount of smoke getting into my eyes and I really can't see what I'm doing. Meanwhile, Ash is going down into the electronic keyboard, getting in between all the keys. I was like, this is the least cool rock star moment of all time. Like I must have looked <laughs> like an absolute fool. Hello, Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most final tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and former lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and former lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is Jeremiah Freights from The Lumineers, whose Grammy-nominated debut album went triple platinum. We talked to Jer about the time Elton John gave him a love tap, what he learned from touring with U2, and how it felt to be dissed by Alice Cooper. So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show! It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not too know? much. There's well, too much yeah, perspective now. Alex, I've always thought that the worst thing that can happen to an artist is happiness. If, as I believe, most creativity comes out of a sense of dissatisfaction with the world and a deep-seated desire to bring it into alignment with how you think it should be, then the opposite, being content, robs you of the motivation to create in the first place. Is that why there's more breakup songs and love songs, you suppose? I've never written one, but I remember... There was this album that came out in 1980, Lou Reed, Blue Mask. The first song, Our House, is an ode to his life, his wife, and his mentor. And I remember listening to this and thinking, oh no, happiness has bit even Lou Reed on the ass. This album is going to suck. But then he followed with songs about alcoholism, paranoia, guns, <laughs> the assassination of JFK. And I breathed a sigh of relief that Lou was still a miserable bastard, and it's one of my favorite albums ever. Yeah, well, I guess when I do think about it, your albums and songs aren't uh, exactly chipper. Well, thank God for pain and insecurity, I always say. <laughs> well, our guest today, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, certainly seems to agree with you, Alan. I mean, he put it in terms of gas efficiency, in that writers get a lot more mileage out of sadness and depression than they get out of joy and happiness. Yeah, and think about how many great songs you could write if you <laughs> caught fire at a shell station. Wow. Now, now, now. It doesn't have to be anything quite that drastic. All you really have to do to be depressed for inspiration is look at how many followers we have on Instagram. <laughs> I just checked and we lost three during this conversation. That's really painful. Oh. I feel like writing music again. But speaking of that, listeners, let's keep Alan happy and retired from writing any more sad music. 
please rate, review, and follow Too Much Effing Perspective on Apple Podcasts. Now for our chat with Jer Freights, but first, a short break. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. And now a guy who, along with Wesley Schultz, started a band called Free Beer that ended up becoming the Lumineers, Jeremiah Freights. Thanks for coming, Jeremiah. It's really a pleasure. Sure. And this is Spinal Tap. You know, there's a lovely little dramatic piano piece that Nigel plays, right? It's delicate. <laughs> it's in D minor. The saddest old keys. That's right. But when it's revealed, we find out that this beautiful song is named lick my love pump <laughs> now with some of the biggest lumineers hits and i'm talking about hohe and ophelia the music is also kind of misleading these songs sound happy but they're actually not right yeah so i mean i've heard wes talk many times about how hohe was actually about a breakup and beyond that too i've heard him say that a lot of people were really tell all members of the band hey I, that was my first dance at you know at our wedding I know when they find out it's a breakup song, they become a little crestfallen or... Right. I think there's something great about art that we selfishly make it about our lives. And that's why we fall in love with artists and bands and songs. And at the end of the day, what the intent was almost becomes arbitrary because once you release it, people do with it what they want. So I was thinking about the fact that on the Lumineers' first album, the song Ho Hey really blew up as a hit, right? And it was featured on the show Heart of Dixie. There was a DJ at the radio station KEXP-FM in Seattle that allegedly discovered the song in a pile of CDs. John Richards. Yeah. Loved it so much that he played it twice in a row for a week and declared it the best song of the year. And you hear that about other songs too, like the Goo Goo Dolls name or Rod Stewart's Maggie May. A DJ decides to flip over a 45 and play the B-side or play some deep album track that no one else is playing and they just blow up. And- Hohe now, 10 years later, has more than 300 million views on YouTube. So all of that attention for your first single must have created some Spinal Tap moments. There was one interesting moment. It was the first time we ever went to Europe. So for us, me and Wes, Europe was like the 10-year plan. We were like, we got to get to London. We got to get to Europe. We're an American band playing very American music. We got to get to Europe. It was the 10-year plan. And then within three days of Hohe being released, it was like, you guys are going to Europe. Wow. Oh, okay. It's great. 
So we played our first show in London at a restaurant. I feel like it was called the Hoxton Bar and Grill, maybe 200 person capacity. And I remember that the show went really well. And then we exited out of a door on the side of the stage for an encore. Me, Wes, there was two other band members. We exit out on the side. Door closes. Oh, no. And now we're in like an alleyway. <laughs> and we're here like, one more song, you know, one more song, a little more news. And then we try to open up the door. Now we realize we're locked in like an alley. It's dark. We're in this alleyway outside the venue. Now we're banging. The crowd is like exceedingly loud. They're like, one more song. We're literally banging on the door like, oh, open up, open up. Someone opens up a window and like, oh, shut the fuck up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh somebody finally uh, lets us back in when we do the encore but that felt like a truly a great spinal tap moment that's funny um i'm trying to think what else happened like it was such a whirlwind of stuff the song went viral and then we got nominated for two grammys we lost both those nominations so we're oh for two in the grammy department but just being nominated does so much for someone's career. We also performed on the Grammys, which is how this story comes about. Previous management was like, yo, we're going to get you guys all these cool clothes to try on. Little do we know the way that works is you try on the stuff so that the fashion or designer can say that blah, 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 wore blah, 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 the red carpet. And then you buy this thing that's like $600, $1,200, just an absurd amount of money. So I remember having this like vest. It was a cool vest. It wasn't like life-changing cool vest. And... <laughs> I was really sick and I remember spilling NyQuil on it. Like enough that it was totally permanently stained and then having to buy it for like $800 or something. I'm just like, <laughs> Oh no. The next time somebody was like, Oh, do you guys want any clothes? We're like, no, we're good. We're just bringing stuff in our closet. <laughs> we can dress ourselves. We're big boys. Jeremiah, I think I probably bought that vest that you damaged <laughs> because I had a band called the Falling Willendas and we'd come to LA and we'd go to this place on Melrose. It was called lords and they had amazing gorgeous one-of-a-kind fashions for rock stars basically and cool. we would go there and there was always some damaged gear from bigger bands so i remember i bought this black silk with gold fleur-de-lis edwardian jacket that was in a motley crew video but they ripped it so i got that and then i, I still have my suit which got ripped because someone threw a rock through the window so i would always get the hand-me-downs of the bigger bands so it came with who wore what, how it got damaged, like a little no, backstory to the- They would basically bullshit the yoke from the Midwest. Yeah, I was going to say, I needed a yellow. I'm going to go in there. Oh, yeah, this is uh, Steven Tyler's jacket from- uh, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Come to think of it, it wasn't Motley Crue, it was Motley Crow. Yeah. Oh, oh right. <laughs> Damn. Damn. Sorry for the detour. Uh, Let's go back to your Grammy experience. Yeah, so I mean, we performed on the Grammys. And me and Stealth, the piano player- we were just like kids in the candy store. We were crazed. We were caffeinated. You know, Jay-Z is there. Rihanna's there. Sting is there. Jack White. I remember taking a double shot of espresso just being so tired because there was just so much prolong. And like, we go into the red carpet and the first person we meet is Magic Johnson. He's like, hey, what's up, Luminaires? And you're like, you can't even make this stuff up. You're just like, holy shit. <laughs> so fast forward, maybe an hour or two later, we're like going through the crowd. And... Piano player stealth, he's running in front of me, jogging, I don't know, and we're moving fast. And he stops and he's sort of like, holy shit. And right in front of him was Elton John with a cavalcade of security guards. And 
he says something like to stealth, like, oh, I love your guys' band and congrats on all your success. You know, total class act gentleman. And then the way I remember it is I push stealth out of the way and I'm like, there's no fucking way you have any idea who we are, who our band is. <laughs> and he gives me a tap on the cheek and he's like, mate, you guys are in the Luminaires and I love you. And I've been trying to work with you guys now for a little bit on something. Keep up the good work. And then he leaves with his security guards and we're like, yeah. <laughs> it was just such a awesome. wild moment. Now, obviously, like within 48 hours, the headline that got ran was Elton John slaps Jeremiah in the face from the Lumineers. <laughs> I would consider it more of a love tap. <laughs> but it was a very surreal moment. You recorded a beautiful solo record on the piano, entitled Piano Piano, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and whether the title is an homage to Little Caesar's Pizza Pizza. <laughs> so basically, during COVID, I love pizza, by the way, so I wish I did something related to pizza, but <laughs> basically, we're on tour with the Lumineers. It was around February, early March of that year, and we started to realize how bad it was. And I vividly remember we were in Omaha, Nebraska, and our management was like, last night was the last show. You guys are all going home. So me and my wife and our son, we went back to Denver, Colorado, where we were living at the time. And it became apparent that weeks were going to turn into months with this situation. And my wife was like, you should record that album of all those piano songs that you've wanted to record. And I thought, I don't want to do it in the house. I want to go to a real studio. I actually called a studio in the Denver area and was revealed very quickly that they had no regard for COVID. And at that time, I was pretty frightened by it. And I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe I will do it in my house. So long story short, recorded everything in our house. Album title, again, came from my wife. She's from Italy. Now, piano means many different things. It means the instrument. It means floor, like piano three. It means slow. It means a ton of stuff. Now, when you say piano, piano together, it means little by little or step by step. I love that sort of double entendre because for me, learning the piano has been such an epic saga of difficulty and passion and curious, and it's been ongoing for many years. And now, obviously, in English, piano, piano has this sort of quirky piano twice, and it's mostly a piano-driven album. So I love the title immediately. And... Yeah, in a nutshell, that's sort of how the album came to be. So you also cover Nirvana's Heart Shaped Box. Yeah. Why did you pick that specific song? I mean, honestly, I got to give credit where credit's due. I was watching Westworld and really loved the first two seasons, especially season one. It was something really amazing about it where they took these songs, like I think Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden, of course, and Radiohead. And I believe they did... Nirvana, because I heard that from the composer of Westworld. I forget his name, but he's a genius composer. And he did a version. It's very sad and broken down. And it just is one of those songs that when you get rid of all the guitars and Kurt Cobain's voice, you realize at its core how beautiful it is. Now, I love the Nirvana version. It's life-changing. It's iconic. It's incredible. But when you take away all that stuff, you just hear this melody that's, in my opinion, like Beatles-level echelon melody. 
I've been on tour over here in Italy and we play that song every night. You know, a rule of thumb that we have with the Lumineers was make sure never a cover was our best song on stage. Mm. And I feel like I might be breaking that rule <laughs> with my solo project. <laughs> but after I play that, I'm kind of like, well, nothing else I can really go to. I mean, I don't end with that. That would be the worst thing I could do is end with a cover that's so powerful like that. But uh, yeah, I love playing that song. It's one of my favorites. And yeah, it's an incredible version that this guy from Westworld pretty much dreamt up. You know, riffing on what you said about learning to play the piano, you're primarily the drummer in the Lumineers. And given Spinal Tap's bad luck with drummers, I wondered if you were thinking of your multi-instrumentalism as sort of a hedge against exploding on stage. <laughs> so in an attempt to sort of evade spontaneously combusting, my favorite part of that movie is probably, you know, he spontaneously combusted and the authority said, just let it be. Don't even investigate. <laughs> I think that's one of the dumbest and smartest jokes of that entire movie. <laughs> no, there's a lot in that question. I will say this. When we started the band, it wasn't called Lumineers. It was even a different genre, different songs. Everything was different. It was me and Wes at the crux of it. And then our mutual friend, Justin, he kind of came in as the drummer. So it left me like, well, I'm a drummer, but maybe I'll try the piano. And it was simple enough organs or piano of these songs, like maybe a Coldplay or Tom Petty that wasn't like the craziest difficult piano to learn. I could barely play an A major chord to save my life. And that's how it sort of all stemmed. And I can play guitar electric guitar, acoustic, electric bass, you know, whatever. Those are very similar. And then piano and drums. And for me with the Lumineers, I write all the music with Wes. Um, every now and then I'll throw some lyrics I get picked up. And live, I play drums primarily. Play a couple of guitar songs, play a couple of piano songs, but primarily the drummer. So that idea of spontaneously combusting still looms over me every night I perform with the <laughs> band. And... You know, honestly, with this piano piano project, it kind of blows my mind that 18 years ago I could barely play a chord to save my life. And to release an entire album that revolves just around the piano really was like, wow, there's been progress made. That is really cool. It's the only thing in my life, the only hobby, the only passion that's never waned. I'm still humbled by the fact that I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing half the time. You know, I think there's some staggering statistic like, 60 or 80,000 songs get uploaded to Spotify every day. And that even if one person ever decided to listen to our band, what did we ever do right to get picked out of that noise? That's a staggering number. In the movie, This is Spinal Tap, there's a section where Rob Reiner, as director Marty DeBerge, reads them their bad reviews. And for their album, Shark Sandwich, they received a succinct two-word pan, Shit Sandwich. <laughs> the Lumineers got their own Shit Sandwich type review from none other than Alice Cooper. How did that happen? Yeah, I don't know what we did to even get on his radar. I I think what happened was that Lumineers got nominated for Best Rock Band in like, I know it wasn't a Grammy. It must have been big enough that he, in an interview, went on this sort of tirade, when I, in my day, rock and roll was the music that your parents didn't want you listening to. It was rebellious. Now you got these Lumineers, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think they should go and like eat a steak 
And I was like, what? I don't even get the insult. Like, we eat meat. Like, <laughs> there are some of us in the band of vegetarian, but I eat meat. Like, Singer eats meat. We, we're, we're, we eat meat. And uh, it was just funny because it was almost like it just really read like an insecure older man holding on to like, I don't know, trying to feel relevant or something. And it was like, at first it was like, oh, did, you know, did you hear what? Uh, Alice Cooper said about you, and at the time you're like, "Cool, what?" And then you're like, "Oh," <laughs> and then you're like, it's "Not even that. <laughs> it's not even a dig, and it's not even that we call ourselves a rock band. I don't know. I just call myself a musician, full stop. And even like genres that have been bestowed upon us, like I don't know what Americana music is. I don't know what folk rock is. Are we folk? Are we rock? Are we experimental at times? Like, what are we? Is not really of my concern, and I feel like it shouldn't be of Alice Cooper's. But we got on his radar somehow. You know, if you got one hater, try to get 10 because it just means you're doing something right. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. Well, I think he dissed you and Mumford and Sons in the same. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. In the same diss. That yeah. sounds right. So. But you're right. It's such a genre jump, right? You know, and I love Alice Cooper, but why are you even chiming in on this? It was such a weird connection, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking about some of the Spinal Tap moments that came out of just the blast of Pohe is because I I had some experiences like that myself as a tour manager. So I was tour manager for Radiohead when Creep was a big hit. Whoa. And wow. so saw both the upside of that and the fun of like your experience in London, having them come to the US, have all the first shows be sold out, which we know for a lot of tours doesn't work out that way, right? Yeah. Um, but also kind of saw the fatigue of did you of having do, the, the sorry to cut you off we're probably gonna have to sure. extend this interview by like 30 minutes now that i know this information radiohead <laughs> is like my all-time favorite band nobody will ever replace them did you tm them during the mtv beach party i was there that's like an amazing moment for me where i'm like can only imagine the shock and probably disgust of a band like radiohead the management like guys i know but if you do it you're gonna play bigger shows and you're going to sell out bigger shows in the states do you want to break america or not this is the way to do it and like that video is just whatever footage is on the internet it's just incredible like full-blown bleach blonde hair tom york playing creep one of the saddest most self-deprecating songs with just like jack bros yeah that must have been awesome witnessing that uh we could definitely spend a half an hour on that story alone. What I will tell you about that, two funny things. One is, remember the VJ Kennedy? Yeah. Yes. For some reason, Tom and Kennedy had some friction. And that had actually come from an earlier interview with Kennedy. I can't remember what she asked them. Um, you know, they're pretty low-key, kind of almost shy guys, right? And I think yeah. in that initial interview, she maybe asked him something about going out after the interview and getting hookers or something. I don't know exactly, but it really sort of triggered them. So she was there, and they started kind of going at it. And that was a weird scene. And the Capitol Records person came and found me and said, Tom and Kennedy are starting to get into it. You got to help. Oh, so I came into the house, and I intercepted Tom. I said, hey, man, let's get out of here. And he and I went walking down the beach for a little bit just to get him to chill out. And then I brought him back and they still were kind of sniping at each other. So that kind of made things a bit awkward. And then there's the whole legend around Tom jumping into the pool because that is on YouTube where he finishes, I think, what was it? Anyone can play guitar or something like that. And then dove in the pool 
fully clothed, and probably a dozen people have taken credit for saving Tom York's life <laughs> from helping him avoid getting electrocuted. Whoa. And to sort of bust that urban myth, what really happened was he did dive in, he swam towards the edge of the pool, and the MTV production manager, I mean, they were pros, they knew what they were doing. So the production manager came over to me and said, make sure he does not touch the microphone. Otherwise, he could get electrocuted. And so I pulled him out of the pool, I grabbed him, I just said, don't touch the mic, let's go. And we walked through the crowd, went backstage, and that was the end of it. But the story's always been, Tom York was on the cusp of being electrocuted, and I saved him. Oh my gosh. So, anyway. It's a good headline. Yeah, it was, it was a little nutty. Hey, this is Mike Wiebe, and I'm the singer in a band called The Riverboat Gamblers. And I'm Zach Blair. I play guitar in a band called Rise Against. Mike and I also have a band called The Draculas, and we also have this great, amazing new podcast called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah, each week we're going to ask ourselves and we're going to ask our guests what three favorite things they are into at that moment or in their entire lives. And then we're either going to agree with them or we're going to make fun of them. And uh, you're going to listen to it and you're going to like it or we will make fun of you. How about that? I just flipped it on you, the person listening to this right now. But we're going to do it every week here on the Sound Talent Network. Once again, it's called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. You know, we interviewed Tommy Stinson from The Replacements, and... They toured with Tom Petty at his free-falling peak, and it was really strange and uncomfortable for them. You guys also toured with one of the biggest bands in the biz, U2. And I was wondering, did you learn anything from that? Yeah, U2 was life-changing, honestly. And this is the most honest truth I can say. Growing up in New Jersey, we had the classic rock station Q104.3. I came out of New York City, and I knew of U2 just from the hits. It felt like every 15 minutes, this radio station would play where the streets have no name, one. But I didn't even think they knew like five to seven songs tops by them. And I always was like, this is cool. But they were never a band that really penetrated me in the way that, say, like Guns N' Roses did from that era, Soundgarden. So at the time, I was probably in my early 30s. I got the call. Do you guys are open up for you too? They're doing their Joshua Tree 30th anniversary in the United States. It was like an easy yes. First show was at the Rose Bowl, like 80, 90,000 people. 
sold out two nights in a row. And we felt like we were ready at that time to do it because we had at least the first two albums, if not the third, probably just the two albums. But with those two albums to do an opening 45, 50 minute set, in our way, we felt like we were just playing our hits. So we felt like we had a super strong set list. We knew how to perform. We knew how to do that and not be frightened out of our minds. But it was still like a huge undertaking. You know, we're about to play at a stadium for the first time ever before the very thing that everyone here is here to see. They're not here to see us. They're here maybe as a bonus. Oh, I like the Lumineers. I know one song or I know a few songs, but I'm definitely here to see Bono and two. So that was nerve wracking. Right before we played, we got to meet them, which was super cool. They were like, do you guys want to meet them again? We're like, yeah. And it was like just going through door after door, past security, past security, eventually going into this green room where Bono's in there and he says, impossible, the Lumineers. <laughs> <laughs> and then we met him and he was awesome. super nice and cool. And like the edge is over behind the couch, strumming an acoustic guitar. And we met Adam Clayton, the bassist. And it was like really surreal. And he was just saying, thank you guys so much. We really love your music. And they were being really sweet with us. And I remember Bono was given chicken noodle soup by like one of his helpers. And then he had to go and was like, do you guys want this chicken noodle soup? It's up for grabs. <laughs> and even in that story, it's all very mundane and normal, right? It's just a dude, maybe had a cold and won some chicken noodle soup, but it's Bono's chicken noodle soups. So the mundane <laughs> becomes extraordinary. And I remember there was something kind of funny about that too, where we performed and it was a dude front row. He looked like he hated us. Maybe even me specifically. And he just had a big cowboy hat. And he was there the first night. I'm not even exaggerating. Dead center. First dude on the gate. Just watching. Next night. Same dude. Same position. And then we, you know, we probably left California at that point. Maybe we went up to like Oregon and Washington. I forget what the travel was like. Then we went down to Dallas. You know, the beautiful newish Dallas Cowboys Stadium. Every night that dude was there. Now we're getting into... <laughs> Boston into the New York City, which is the end of the run, 9, 10, 11 show run. And that dude is on the flight with us. Oh, boy. He walks on and he's like super pumped. He's like, Lemonades, Lemonades, you guys are great. I'm going to the show tonight. <laughs> and we ended up talking to him. I think he was just from France and had <laughs> a particular maybe look on his face. But I also think he didn't know who we were the first night. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> what that dude is spending out of pocket to be at every U2 show that up front. That's like easily 10, 20 Gs right there. That's so wild. And then to finish off that tour, uh, there was a really short flight from Boston to New York. And it was the one flight that I think all of us wished was the longest flight ever because uh, U2 was like, do you guys want to fly in our chartered 747 from Boston to New York? And we were like, hell yeah. I mean, it was like their personal private 747. The band was up front and there was tons of people in the plane, like everyone from celebrities to, you know, even us when we tour in the United States, we have about 75 people working for us. So you can imagine the size of you too. Yeah. It's a whole operation. It's like a little city, a little microverse of easily a hundred people. Everyone from the lighting person to the front of house, to the monitor engineer, to management, to physiotherapist, whatever it might be. And that was just amazing. You know, we were hanging up front with them and 
I remember Bono was in sandals, drinking a glass of red wine. And he just went to every single person throughout the whole plane. Mind you, like after us, he was just shooting the shit with his crew and people he knew, but he just has that natural extrovertedness. Yeah, charisma. And you can see that he gets stuff from interacting with people. And uh, it was surreal, you know, looking into the eyes of these people that have changed so many people's lives. And the first night in LA when they performed, they always started with Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And then about hmm. three or four songs in, they did Where the Streets Have No Name. That, for me, was one of like my all-time favorite rock intros of all time. It's just so stunning with the big organ, the signature, palm you, the delay from the edge, and then the drums and bass start to come in. But it's such a work of art. It's really a masterpiece, one of the best rock intros of all time. And when they played that every night, the first night in particular, I just got tears in my eyes where I was just like, this is so beautiful. Holy cow. And every night, night after night, you know, watching Bono sing, I was like, oh, now I get why millions of people have U2 as their band because they are the real deal. I think for me too, I'm 37. I think two things. One, for whatever reason, I missed the U2 boat when I was like in my formative teenage years. You know, I was into like Zeppelin, ACDC, Guns N' Roses, and then even like Dream Theater, Metallica, Tool, a plethora of bands, but never U2. I think number two was that growing up in the era of like South Park was massive. They teased Bono. Bono sort of became a meme because he was so famous that it's hard to almost understand who is that person behind all the jokes, behind all the fame, behind all the celebrity. You know, he's a celebrity, capital C. And then after meeting him, I was just like, oh, wow, there's a person there. And they really perform night after night. They leave it all on stage. They sacrificed so much for their fans. And Bono's voice was just like, and I heard that that's how he got his name. I think when they were singing in Ireland, I think there was an Italian person that said his voice is Bono, which means good or beautiful, which is actually not the word because now I live in Italy. I'm like restaurant proficient with my level (laughs) of uh, Italian, but the right word would have been Buono with you, Buono. And I think what they must have heard was Bono. And then the rest is history. I'm like, that's such a fucking cool story. You know, it's interesting. Of course, you've opened for you too, but we haven't said anything about the fact that the Lumineers in your own right have sold out Madison Square Garden two nights in a row. You guys sell out the Hollywood Bowl. You have had massive success playing at the highest level. And that is sort of the stuff of dreams, right? There's something about selling out Madison Square Garden. That's what Zeppelin does, right? Or that's what Zeppelin did. That's what the Stones did. And I would imagine that playing Madison Square Garden, there's got to be some Spinal Tap moments when you're heading on stage in such an iconic place. The best Spinal Tap moment I can think of when it comes to a big show like you guys are describing is probably the first time we played Lollapalooza in Chicago. I remember it was nice weather and I remember we were like backstage in this like green room, which was also right next to the VIP area of all the fans. And there was no barricade, basically. So we're about to perform one of the biggest shows of our lives. And Hohe was like viral. And we were sort of the band for this moment in America. It really felt like that. 
we were doing everything Saturday Night Live, Jay Leno, Conan, Letterman. Oh, hey, was the number one most Shazam song in New York City at that moment. The Grammys, everything was just firing in all cylinders. I we're in this crazy moment and also getting prepared to play to 50, 60,000 people a lot of Palooza. And I remember two things that happened. One, we're like just about to go on stage two minutes out. There's a guy like taking photos and then he's kind of getting closer and I'm really stressed. And I go up to him like, listen, buddy, you want to take the photo, take the photo, but like get out of my face. And he's like, your management hired me to capture <laughs> this moment. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. You're like working for us. Keep taking photos. It was a really anxious moment of just the backstage coupled with we're about to play the show. Then we all get on stage. And again, it's an ocean of people, literally 50, 60,000 people. And then we start playing. I think we opened up our set with Submarines at the time of our first album. And we're playing and nobody's clapping, nobody's cheering. And we're like, all right, this is a weird <laughs> moment. This is not good. This is like the nightmare moment. And you're playing. And then after about a minute, nobody's really into it and i'm just like holy cow and then i think we start hearing a chant something like turn it up turn it up oh. now i guess what had happened was we were performing and our sound guy at the time who by the way no longer works with us not just from this <laughs> incident but i think he thought we were like sound checking so he didn't turn on the speakers he didn't turn on the pa so we were just like performing and then you heard PA turn on and I think I hit like the kick drum and it was like, boom. I didn't like interruption. That many people just going nuts. Oh, wild. And then we restarted submarines and then it was just like one of the coolest experiences of our <laughs> lives. Just performing to that many people. And you know, there's something to that too. I think when things go wrong, when things don't, fall the way they're intended to you remember that day the most so i think that there's something beautiful about that you never remember the day where you got a great sleep and you had a great sandwich and nothing went wrong it's always like you remember the ruffles you remember the wrinkles you remember the speakers not being turned on for your biggest show ever things like that and at the time you're like pretty livid <laughs> obviously <laughs> but then now looking back you're like all right, that was the history of that moment. That's how it happened, you know. Well, you're a good company because Spinal Tap played, I think it was Glastonbury, and Slash sabotaged their gear, and they went out and they had no sound. Alan, it was Wembley. Oh, it was Wembley. Dubly. It was Dubly. It was uh, in Dubly. Wait, no, is this a real story? Yeah, it's a real story. <laughs> so they were playing live at Wembley, and it's on YouTube. You can see it. Oh, my God. And that video is so interesting because you think about... The Spinal Tap members, Christopher Guest, Michael McKee, and Harry Shear, like masters of improv, right? Right. And you think they could have just riffed that so easily. And they are so visibly uncomfortable in that moment. You really think it wasn't part of their... No, act? we talked... We have an inside scoop. Really? Yeah. <laughs> inside source. Yes. Oh, so they were like, truly like... Yeah, yes. befuddled. Totally befuddled. Yeah. Oh, man. One of the Luminaire's strengths is that you appeal to so many demographics, whereas, you know, Spinal Tap, what did they say? They only appealed to white male teens. What was that they said, Alex? Well, <laughs> young men. Yeah, young men. Right. But you guys have generations in your audiences. What do you attribute that to? 
I think the music that we put forward just comes from an honest place. There's aspects and there's songs within the catalog that feel timeless. I think that that's what we're naturally drawn to. You know, and I could only dream of this one day from being remembered and looked back on. But I remember watching that five-hour Eagles documentary, which was amazing. Went from a lukewarm Eagles fan to just like, those guys were so badass and what a story. But just Don Henley talking about, just something to the effect of the Eagles were not a band listened to by people. The Eagles were a band that were listened to when people's lives were happening. That first make out in a car, driving across the country, going through a breakup, moving into your first apartment. That would be like my best case scenario dream for the Lumineers. It's not about more money. It's not about winning the Grammys or the cover of Rolling Stone. And I feel like I've heard from enough people. You can't talk to them all these days, which is kind of crazy, but just seeing tattoos of lyrics on their arm or Mm. stories of they went through this hard moment in their lives and they threw on this album and it saved them the way that I used to have to listen to certain records that had gotten me through really hard times. It's almost hard for me to imagine our music doing that to other people. So that might be a piece of the puzzle that, you know, to answer your question, I think that the music lends itself to be experienced, not just like, let's just throw this on for background music, but there's something to sink your teeth into. I like this idea that things can be complex not necessarily complicated. I think complicated is a bad word to describe music, whereas I think complex is really high level. And I think there's something simple, but also complex at times about our music. But I know that when writing our music, the best litmus test is if it gets us high, it's going to be good. And that's the litmus test that we've done for the last four albums. And I think that would be the, the litmus test we'll do for the however many left we have in us. I want to bring up one more thing, and it's just because I think we have a connection and we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but I lost my sister in 2000 and you lost your brother in 2001. And your loss led to the beginning of the Lumineers. I actually never wrote a song again. Oh. I really felt like I couldn't, that I had no business writing a song if I couldn't write something about my loss and I couldn't mm. capture it. So I stopped. But you took the loss of your brother and you turned it into a band. You talk also about the Lumineers, one of their attractions with their audiences that they connect with people. How do you feel your loss has worked into your songwriting? Well, that's, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I lost my brother. I was probably 14 years old. He was 19 at the time. He died from a drug overdose. You know, I pray that remains to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, A couple things. One, the grief never goes away. And you and me, unfortunately, we're not in a unique situation. You know, there's tons of people that are in our boat that have lost siblings, which sounds like much too young and before their time. I remember a very profound moment, and I don't remember if this was before or after my brother passed away. Looking back, probably after he had passed away, but a friend of my brother, this guy named Patrick Sullivan, his mom died of cancer. She was young, you know, in her 50s tops. It was really sad for the community. And I remember this overwhelming almost intoxicating feeling of like, I want to write a song about her and her leaving this earth too soon and leaving her two children behind. And it was just like really overarching feeling of that's what I need to do. And then dealing with my brother, it's almost like, I feel like happiness and joy in terms of inspiration can be pretty fleeting. Like when you feel happy or feel joy, I don't know how much gasoline, how many miles you get per gallon 
using those as source materials. The thing about grief and sadness and depression is you get 100 miles to the gallon and there's infinite amount of gallons. If you can pull yourself up out of that well of despair and grief. And another thing about that is somebody said to me once that going down to the bottom might actually be helpful because when you're just floating in the grief, when you're floating in the sadness, you're just in the abyss, you know. But when you go to the rock bottom feeling, you can actually push off the bottom, springboard back to the top. Easier said than done. But, and I remember writing a lyric that it was in a song, it's not a Lumineer song, but it was something with Wes where I wrote this lyric. I remember I was home in Ramsey where I grew up. Probably the first Christmas he was no longer with us. And as you know, the holidays and anniversaries, they suck those first like probably even 10 years of their passing. They really suck, especially the first one, the second one. So on my couch, it's probably like December 20th. And there was a probably like a Target commercial. And it was something about like, blah, 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 coming home for the holidays. And I wrote this lyric, you won't be coming home for the holidays. Because talking about the death is a really heavy thing that a lot of songwriters and lyricists do. But this idea that you won't be coming home for the holidays was a way to acknowledge that heavy shit about the death, but also just in a way to be like, it's something simple and mundane. Like that person won't be coming home for the holidays. And I think like when I wrote that lyric and transformed my confusion, my grief, my despair into something that was, oh, that's helping and actually healing me in some small way, but a profound way. I think it like jumpstarted everything about the band and wanting to make music that was important and wanted to make music that was talking about stuff and wanted to make music that was dealing with stuff that even the singer, you know, he lost his dad at a young age to cancer and talking about those things in song, talking about those things to art. If we were going through it, then we definitely knew lots of other people were going through it. And I think that that was the catalyst. Let's use this band for that. Let's first heal ourselves, go personal, go deep. And perhaps when, you know, you've asked me a few moments ago, where's the universal aspect of our music come from? There's this idea, the more personal you go, the more universal you get. Perhaps there's something in that, the way we perform, types of chords we use, the lyrics, everything, the whole package lends itself to absorb or signal to other people going through that, who are seeking that, you know? having come from such a great loss myself i don't know but yeah it's a great question i'm glad you asked me that because it's really something that it's so healthy to talk about it's cathartic i feel like it relieves valves not only for you asking it but then for me responding and then anybody listening i know somebody has lost a sibling within a year or two who are listening right now so even that you know that people are getting connected and hit by this conversation There's something beautiful about that, too. We have thoroughly enjoyed this, Jeremiah. Where can our listeners learn more about your ongoing projects, about what the Lumineers are up to, that kind of thing? The Lumineers, always Lumineers.com or the Lumineers social media. And then stuff for me, obviously, I'm always keeping people up to date about Lumineers stuff on my own Instagram, primarily Jeremiah Freight. That's where people can see videos from stuff I'm doing with my piano piano project. And then I just released an album called Northern, uh, collaborating with this amazing artist named Taylor Dupree. 
it's another instrumental album that makes you go deep into the well of emotion and thought. So I'd recommend people check that out too if they're interested. And, and yeah. Really good to meet you, Jeremiah. Thank you so much for being on the show. And if you ever want to have an offline conversation about Radiohead during the Pablo Honey era, happy to swap stories with you. All right, deal. Listeners, this episode ended on a profound yet somewhat heavy note, and thanks for hanging in there with us. We think you'll agree this conversation with Jer was very special, and we'd love his line, quote, the more personal you go, the more universal you get. That sounds like news you can use, and you can bet we'll be thinking about that for future episodes of the TMEP show. Thanks to Jeremiah Freights for his lucid, belly-laugh-inducing storytelling, and thanks also to Eric Anderson from the Missing Peace Group for bringing Jer to us. Too Much Epping Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby, music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow our show on Apple Podcasts and leave a short review while you're there. It helps other listeners to find us. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Production. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music, or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Evergreen Podcast Network.